Hi, I'm Danny Glover. I've recently had the opportunity to be in a very special motion picture called To Sleep With Anger. Going back to the movies. We're going back to the movies. We're going back to the movies. We're going back to the movies. Movies. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee! Ben! My man! What's up? Oh, not too much. I'm a little sore. I've been working out today, trying to get into wedding weight. Yeah, man. That's so cool that you're working out. What kind of exercises are you doing? Uh, today we did a lot of uh, burpees. Is that right? Burpees. Where you go from, like, plank to crouch, and then you, like, jump. Yep. Those are, those are tough. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard shit right there. Are you planking? Uh, Yeah, I can plank. I uh, Push-ups are tough for me. Oh, yeah. I got wrist pain. They're the worst. Yeah, I have wrist pain, too. I think it's from all the g- intense gaming that I've done over the years. <laughs> um. <laughs> so that was Nat and Ben talk about exercise. Yeah, something that's never happened before. <laughs> Welcome, listeners, old and new, to Back to the Movies, a podcast where Ben and myself talk about movies but not just any old movies specifically movies from a specific year the first season of back to the movies we've been talking about movies from the year 1990 and we are in the fall of 90 at this point we've had a long list of great movies some duds but mostly great movies and we are in the home stretch and today we're talking about a lesser-known indie feature called To Sleep With Anger. Ben. Indeed we are. What's the deal with To Sleep With Anger? Oh, what is the deal with To Sleep With Anger? I was trying to remember how this wound up on our schedule. I think it was actually you that suggested it. It was a film that I had only the barest peripheral awareness of prior to seeing it and researching it for this podcast. Yeah, to continue our conversation about the Criterion Collection that we've had in the episodes covering Metropolitan and Paris is Burning, To Sleep With Anger was a pretty high-profile Criterion release sometime last year, I think. It was Um, very recently. Yeah, and it is one of the few Criterion Collection physical releases that is directed by a black person. So when it was released, it got a fair amount of fanfare. And of course, I noticed it. I noticed the really beautiful cover art that they made for it. And I noticed that it had the 1990 on it. So when it came time to make this list of movies they were covering, I was like, we should give some exposure and some love to, to Sleep With Anger. So that's sort of how it came to be to be on this show. And my understanding is it's it's not an unheralded film. I think it actually has quite a strong following in art house circles. It's just sort of one of the ones that that passed me by. Yeah, um, I, you heard of it prior to all the Criterion Hubble? No, I had not. They totally exposed me to this movie. I would not have known about it or Charles Burnett if it hadn't been for their touted release. So again, it's like. That article really shed some light on like what Criterion is capable of doing for for certain filmmakers. And let me ask you that: Are you happy that they exposed you to this film? Did you enjoy watching this movie? I am happy that they exposed me to this film. I, or I'm I'm happy that they exposed the world to this film because I think 
that this film does have a lot to offer for lots of people. I was incredibly bored by this movie. I did not enjoy watching it very much. It's not for everyone. It's not that entertaining. It's not really a movie per se. It's <laughs> funny that you would say that, Nat, because I feel exactly the opposite. That's right, listeners. It's another fight episode. Ding, ding, ding. Read the bell. Let's go. Yeah, man. I'm I'm not going to fight as hard on this one because I, I, I recognize that I might be too ADD or stupid to appreciate whatever <laughs> is in this movie that people love so much. So I'm not going to go to the mat like I did on uh, Miami Blues. Um or Blue, or Blue Steel. Steel, like a movie that I didn't like. Um, just because I I can tell that this movie has a lot more to offer, like intellectually, than some of those mm. other movies do. It's not just like, <laughs> oh, I liked it when Alec Baldwin punched the God, guy in the you're face. You're just baiting me right now. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about the movie because I'm sure that you're going to have a lot of cool insights. I'm just going to offer some color commentary like every 20 minutes and be like yeah this is the part where i was really bored (laughs) (laughs) what's funny is i started where you were at when i first put the movie in you know i've been pretty busy recently you know trying to plan a wedding during a pandemic is is a challenge and i put the movie on and it's doing its sort of first scene and i literally i pulled open the computer and started responding to like vendor emails because i was like i just i don't know if i've got the headspace for this I got to watch it for the podcast. And then shortly into the movie, our uh, uh, secret weapon, or maybe not so secret weapon, Danny Glover walks on screen and I put the computer down and I never felt inclined to pick it up again. Wow. It just took a little bit of work for me to get on board. And once I was there, I was so glad that I had made it because I found this movie to be um, just absolutely incredible it really like my reaction to it after the fact was just like god damn i love that movie which is a you know a a great way to feel after you finish watching a movie for the first time yeah i wish i had had a similar reaction but it just like didn't ever click with me like there, there wasn't a lot of movie there for me but before we get into that stuff let's talk a little bit about the background of like where this movie came from we call it ben's book report corner ben take it away yeah, I mean, you already mentioned the director, Charles Burnett, who's just, I mean, he's really the important figure in the creation of this film because he is a really singular voice in independent cinema and in black cinema. He was born in Mississippi, but moved to L.A. at a very young age. And that's sort of important because that, that mirrors the journey of the characters in this film. But also importantly, when he moved to L.A., he moved to the Watts neighborhood. Mm. He was 21 years old when the Watts riots broke out in the 60s yeah those were and of course that was also the location of the rodney king riots in the 90s yeah so just generations of rioting basically it's the city burning up and i mean we talked about trauma at a young age 21 isn't quite as young as you know paul verhoven or clive barker but uh it's still he's still a young man when when he sees a you know pretty uh, i'm sure very frightening and, and upsetting thing take place for sure for sure and uh, it certainly taps him into the experience of, of being black in L.A. and being black in America. He gets his master's in film from UCLA. He originally was studying to be, I think, like an electrician. You know, he wanted to have a trade job so that he had a steady income. But he had always had this creative drive. And eventually he gets to execute on that. 
Um, while he's there, he spends five years uh, making his thesis film, which turns into his first feature, a movie called The Killer of Sheep. Uh, it plays the festival circuit in 77, and it is a major critical hit. It is seen by basically everyone as the emergence of a really important new voice in cinema. Um, and it was a micro-budget film with all amateur actors. It was, it was you know, something akin to like Chris Nolan's following. I really want to see that movie. I've seen clips of it, and it looks awesome. His second film is a movie called My Brother's Wedding, and for that one, he maintained the like sort of the ultra low budget aesthetic of his first film. But that one was kind of uh, a disappointment at the time; didn't gain the same critical acclaim that Killer of Sheep did. And so, when he sets out to make his third film, he shakes things up, and that's To Sleep with Anger. He makes it for a higher budget. He hires professional actors. It's sort of his attempt to actually make something more akin to the traditional film experience. Right. So what about our tech people, DP? Well, sort of to that effect, he, he hires um, a couple more established industry professionals or, you know, aspiring industry professionals to help him on the film. The first person I want to mention was Walt Lloyd, who was the DP. Um, he was like a pretty hot independent cinematographer in the 90s. Like some of his other credits include Sex, Lies, and Videotype, which... We have mentioned so many times on this podcast because it's like influence on the industry when having only come out the year before is so profound um, as sort of like the demarcation of the beginning of Sundance and the indie scene. Even though it isn't really the actual beginning of any of that, it's sort of like the flagship, the vanguard. Yeah, it's when that whole notion of like anyone can just pick up a camera and like make their indie movie and become a hotshot in Hollywood. Like that's when... That, that whole mythology off. starts right there. Yeah, But Wallide also shot things like Empire Records. Uh, he shot Shortcuts, the Altman film. That's so funny that he shot Shortcuts because like, I feel like it almost takes place in the same visual world as this movie. Right. Just like kind of like... The sort of the L.A. suburbs. Yeah, like L.A. but minus any glamour. Just like bungalow houses with nice earth tones. Like, like I, that is shortcuts to me. And that was kind of this movie, too. Yeah, absolutely. By the 2000s, he mostly transitions to TV, which I think is a shame because this is a great looking film. I'm sure like a very small budget. And he does have that sort of sense of like naturalism in depicting you know, American urban life that that is really uh, pretty unique. Yeah. The other person I want to mention was Nancy Richardson. Uh, this is right at the start of her career. But she's the editor on the film. I mostly like, you know, when I look at these people, I try to look for things that sort of interest me or trends or, or major credits. And the thing that I find really interesting about Nancy Richardson is that she has become like the de facto editor for YA films, young adult films. She edited two of the Twilight movies, two of the Divergent movies. She did that. Um, there was a Red Riding Hood movie with Amanda Siegfried, which I had totally forgotten existed. Until I was looking at Richardson's IMDb and then all of a sudden I got like a sense memory of a trailer that I must have seen on my laptop in college. But I just think that's so interesting that even as these films are being made by like different companies and based off different works and directed by different people, they're bringing on the same editor. Let me tell you something about editing. You know, you'll get, at least in the trailer world, they will pigeonhole you sometimes. If you cut a really good horror trailer, then your producers are just constantly going to be like, we'll put you on this horror trailer. We'll put you on that horror trailer. So I guess it translates to feature editing. 
you know, they're, they're like, who are we going to hire for yeah, this? Yeah, totally. I mean, like the same thing happens to directors and all people on the behind the camera. But it just, I just never really thought about it this way before because, you know, you think the editor is being selected by a producer, by the director. It's probably somebody they've worked with before. And so you, you, you think that it more has to do with like their affiliation with a particular filmmaker than with a particular genre. Well, I mean, to sleep with anger really fits well with the Divergent and <laughs> Red Riding Hood, Amanda Seyfried movie, right? Yeah, the sexy teen Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, the dystopian nightmare uh, trilogy. I don't know. I think it fits right in there. Anyway, I, those are just a couple of people that, that really caught my eye doing the research. The important figure is Burnett, because this is Burnett's film. He writes it, he directs it, and he was, you know, he comes from a very hands-on school of filmmaking, you know, like these are very personal uh, tour driven works. Yeah, for sure. Let's get into the movie itself. And you're going to be our spirit guide here because I can't okay. track this movie at all. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something else. I didn't admit at the beginning. I tried to watch this movie about a year and a half ago when Criterion channel came out. It was one of the movies that they were touting on the big release. I fell asleep like five minutes in. <laughs> So this was a real redemption screening. I was like, okay, I am going to sit down and watch this movie. I'm not going to fall asleep. Uh, it took every fiber of my will not to fall asleep. <laughs> and that lasted throughout the whole thing. It wasn't like the first 20 minutes. Um, I'm Great. sorry, man. It's just that should we talk about the general vibe now or should we save it? No, tell, tell me what you're talking about. I just feel like this is one of the sleepiest movies I've ever seen. It doesn't have a lot of life energy. And I don't mean from the performers. I mean from the movie itself, from like the pacing of scene to scene and the plot. Just not a lot happens. And it's just kind of fucking boring. I'm sorry. It's it's a boring no, movie. You're sort of... I don't disagree. And actually, this is a great way to transition into the way the movie opens, which is with this sort of isolated shot or a couple of shots of a real life still life painting uh, a man in a white suit and hat sitting next to a table with a bowl of fruit. There's a still life painting behind him and he's just sitting still. And then the bowl of fruit catches on fire and he catches on fire. And it's a, it is a pretty pedantic <laughs> microcosm for the entire film. It really, it made me think of dreams a lot because it's like really on the nose sort of with its symbolism. Yeah. This movie and dreams definitely have a lot in common, but it is this movie. This movie is a still life that is about the fire that burns just underneath of an apparently placid existence. Yeah. I just, I can't get behind that because in my movies, I just need shit to go down eventually. I can't have the main character trip on a bunch of marbles and that's it. I need something to happen to enjoy my movie. I'm sorry. I can't do it, man. How do you feel? Even fucking Metropolitan about... had some shit going down. Even Metro, And that was like a bunch of rich kids in tuxedos. Ah, uh, man. How do you feel about still life paintings? as like paintings if you're at like a museum it's like a a 10 a 10 second look maybe <laughs> i'm not gonna look at them as long as i look at that renaissance shit i'll tell you that much like those those 15 footers that have 
hundreds of different scenes. The big romantic, like, Napoleon yeah. and Egypt shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, still Alive is fine, but no, it's not going to make me look for more than 20 seconds. I'm sorry. Like, give me some some expressionist, some impressionist, some cubist, anything to kind of mix it up a little bit. But this the straight-up still life, that's a tough portrait watch for for a long period of time. So... Maybe that's how I'm coming into this. But I'm sorry. It's a movie, dude. It, shit has to happen. There's got to be some... It's funny that like there's fire in the first five seconds of this movie because I feel like for the rest of the movie, there's absolutely no fire from anything. I mean, considering the movie ends with two brothers almost killing each other and then another man dying, I don't know how you can say that. The two brothers get into a fight in like two minutes the tension doesn't get ratcheted up very much. And the man who dies is a man who trips on a bucket of marbles in the other room. We don't even <laughs> see it happen. Okay. <laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves though. Let's, let's get back into like the opening of the movie. Yeah, okay. Cause after we have our, our little uh, um, thesis statement, we get a, a, a scene where we introduce all of the members of this extended family that will uh, uh, um, be the focal point of the movie. We should just break these all down right here because this big family. It actually took me a little while to, to grok like all the relationships. Well, because yeah, the movie got, doesn't spell them out super clearly. You got grandpa, grandma, two boys, two wives of boys, and two grandchildren, right? So eight people. Yes. Yeah. And then there's also a kid who isn't in the family who plays the trumpet, and that that was the part that That's really super confused confusing. Me for a while. That was really. <laughs> weird because they keep cutting to him like he's in the house with them yeah but that's the the, again this is like early on in the movie i was like oh oh, i don't know i'm uh, this is too much work i'm not interested (laughs) but but that's not important for what happens later so let's talk about grandma grandpa that's gideon and Susie, played by paul butler and mary alice butler i don't know particularly well mary alice i was looking at her this entire movie and i was like i know who this actress is i know who this actress is and i couldn't place her She's the the replacement Oracle in the last Matrix movie after Gloria Foster died. Oh my God, that's right. And that's so stupid when they did that in that movie. It's like, it sucks when actors die, but don't come up with some stupid reasoning that they've changed faces. Like, just change the actor. It's fine. No, in the Matrix, no one cares if you got to change the actor. Yeah, and that was a pretty thankless role because Gloria Foster was so iconic in the first movie. She was, um, yeah. But she does get a couple of good scenes. I always really liked the last scene with the architect and the oracle. Yeah, I just always um, thought th- that was like one of my first moments where I was like a kid in a movie theater being like, why are they doing this? Like, it doesn't matter that I know she died. It's sad, but like you don't have to come up with some bullshit reasoning. Like did Dumbledore and Harry Potter say like, <laughs> I went to the store and got a spell to change my face when uh, Richard Harris died. When, when Michael Gambon comes in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've changed. I took a de-aging I've potion. altered my face 15 years. Oh. It also had a strange effect on my voice. Yeah. I now have a slight Irish accent. Anyway, total tangent, but cool. That's awesome. She's in the Matrix. Susie is sort of the, the emotional heart of the film. And Mary Alice is excellent in the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, she is. She is very good. She plays a very, very quiet character. Very, very repressed. We see very little emotion from her. But 
she still is the fulcrum of a number of crucial scenes and and you get that the 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 sense of the deep humanity behind the very sort of mannered exterior absolutely a lot of the characters in this movie are quiet too quiet (laughs) okay so the next uh like subset of the family we talked about it's the younger son of gideon susie that's babe brother uh or samuel as we learn his name is at the end of the movie uh his wife linda and their son sonny yes uh, Richard Brooks plays Babe Brother. I don't really know him very well. He's mostly a TV guy now. Linda is played by an actress named Cheryl Lee Ralph, and she won an Independent Spirit Award for this performance, which I think was well-deserved. She gets a couple of the really, of like sort of the most emotionally wrought scenes in the movie, and she's just so good in them. Agreed, agreed. And I just want to mention that Sonny is played by Devon Nixon, who was Miles Dyson's kid in T2 a few years later. Ooh. Do you think James Cameron saw this movie and was like, get me that kid <laughs> yeah i mean coming off this he probably he's he's got heat he's the the, the hottest young uh black actor in hollywood there you go and the, the last episode of the family is the older brother junior and his wife pat junior's played by carl lumbly who if you have seen buckaroo bonsai um which i've mentioned many times on this podcast because it's a movie i love uh, he plays the alien John Parker. It's a great role in that movie. And he plays, it's very, very different in this movie where he is a very serious and somber person. Yeah. And then his wife, Pat, is played by Vanetta McGee. That's M-C-G-E-E, by the way, not M-A-G-E-E. Yeah. No relation. <laughs> no relation? No relation. She, again, it took me a second to place her. She is the female lead in one of my favorite bad Clint Eastwood movies, that's like a spy slash mountain climbing thriller called The Iger Sanction. Oh, interesting. I, I consider that one like a must check out if you like Robert Ludlum uh, adaptation kind of things. You know, like the, that particular brand of high concept spy thriller. Can I ask you something 70s. about that movie? Yeah. So deep within my brain, there's memory of a movie that I watched with my dad. Maybe I was like seven years old. Yeah. And it's a mountain climbing movie. And I don't know what movie it is. There's one scene that I've got in my head. Maybe you can help me with this. So the scene is that there's like a bearded guy who's a bad guy and he gets trapped under ice. He gets like killed by the good guy trapped under ice. And there's like shots of him like trying to get out from under the ice, but he can't. And... I've been trying to find this movie. It could be Cliffhanger. I don't think it's Cliffhanger. I think I looked up Cliffhanger because that was so obvious, but I don't think that's it. What about Vertical Limit? No, it's not Vertical Limit because Vertical Limit I saw like- Because that one's got lots of ice. No, I I saw that like in theaters. This was like an 80s movie on TV when I was like very, very young. So listeners. I don't think it's Iger Sanction because I'm pretty sure everybody's clean shaven in that. All right. Well, then my search- It's the 70s. My search goes on. God damn it. But you should check it out because it's it's great, like, cheesy shit. I will check it out, but deep down, I'll be wishing that it was the bearded guy getting trapped under the ice. I'm just letting you know. And I can't guarantee that's not in this movie. It's been a while since I've seen it, but... Oh, then you're saying there's a chance. There's a chance. There's a chance. Okay. Okay. So... Now that we've talked about the family, I want to talk about one of the, my takeaways from this movie. You'll notice there that there's a lot of like really generic names. Yep. Bay Brother, Sonny, Junior. Oh, and oh, I noticed. It's 
<laughs> it's one of the things that sort of makes the movie uh, um, so difficult to latch onto at the beginning is that there's this sort of like intentional vagary to everything. The characters all have like generalized nicknames. They refer to a lot of backstory without fleshing it out with detail. Yep. So it only exists as like kind of like, you know, that one time when we did that one thing and the audience never knows exactly what that was. Yep. And it, it can have the effect of making the characters seem flat. Um, or or hollow, you know, like there's nothing really there inside them. But the movie combats it, in my opinion, with a lot of really excellent, like specifically uh, observed details in the affectations of the characters, in the way that they interact with each other, in the environment in which they live, that make it so that they never feel fake to me. They feel like real people, but the 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 vagueness then sort of elevates them to this almost mythical level where they become like archetypal even though they they also never don't feel real wow that was a terrible sentence they also never don't feel real i see what you're saying and this sort of ties in with the intellectual element that i think i may have missed or that just did not resonate with me at all because i do agree with you that this movie does have that mythical feel to it even though it takes place in a very normal house with a bunch of very normal people and nothing that mythical happens. But there is something special about this movie where it's got that atmosphere of you don't really know if yeah, I... something weird is going on. And that is a cool element of the movie that I liked a lot. It's just there's so much to do. There's so much to wade through to get to that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think a part of it is that the uh... – the, the story structure is such a common one. The, 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 the general plot of like a stranger comes to town. Right. Is, is a really common, like, you know, Dostoevsky said it was like one of the only two plots that ever existed. Stranger and so the movie town. feels like it, it's, it's one you've, you've seen before. And it's only in these sort of very nuanced character details that it, that it separates itself. Um, but I find that tension between, specificity and obscurity or, or obtuseness very very interesting and i find the way the movie executes it to be very effective where it does sort of just elevate the plight of these characters into something almost like a fable if this movie had been kind of what i thought it was going to be it might not be as lauded as it is because i was expecting things to go off the rails you were expecting needful things, but with, you know, a family in Watts, L.A. I've never seen needful things, but yeah, sure. That's Stephen King's Stranger Comes to Town story. Okay. Yeah, I was expecting him to be the devil and, like, for him to start sucking people's souls out or even for him to just be sort of, like, a little evil, but instead it's just all very small. It's very small in every aspect. Well, speaking of the him. Yes. We should, we should get to that. That's sort of the next thing that happens after we meet all our family members. He shows up. Harry. Harry comes to town, played by Danny Glover. Yep. He's he's here. <laughs> I'm yawning. God. <laughs> it doesn't help that, that uh, I'm pretty tired, too, so it's like hard for me to bring the energy to counteract your lethargy. But let's talk Danny Glover. Danny Glover is this movie's masterstroke, and it's not subtle about it. You know, you, he's all over the poster, uh, but he is so fucking good in this goddamn movie. It's almost unbelievable. 
at least as far as I'm concerned. He uh, um, was a big get for the film. He had to reduce his fee and he helped finance the film because otherwise they would never have been able to afford him. We already talked about him a little bit during Predator 2, but it's definitely worth restating how much heat he had coming out of the 80s where the Lethal Weapon movies are massive hits, but he's also made a really big name for himself critically with things like Color Purple. He had Witness. He had Silverado. He had Lonesome Dove, which was a massive hit on TV. Like, he was a big, big star. Yeah, I couldn't believe that he's only 44 when he makes this movie. Does he not seem like he's, like, 65 in this movie? I mean, they color his hair a little bit, and and, and he's presented as a contemporary of these two older people who have like adult children. Yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely weird. felt like he was at least in his late fifties. I feel like has Danny Glover just always been old. I I knew Danny Glover from angels in the outfield, which is five years after this, which means he was 49. And I assumed he was like 77. <laughs> in angels in the outfield. He's definitely one of those actors who's always been old, but I think that's because like his first psychotic role has him playing way over his age and saying things like I'm getting too old. For I this never shit. saw lethal weapon. So I don't even have that frame of reference. I'm just like, but Hollywood Jesus, did this guy is old man. And I'm like looking him up and I'm like, he's 44. He's like the same age as Channing Tatum or whatever right now. Maybe not <laughs> well, Channing. it's worth noting that his, his other movie this year is him being the lead of an action film. Which I didn't actually watch, so I can't compare, unfortunately. But we should talk to Andy and ask him how old he thinks Danny Glover is. I was like... He does spend a lot of that movie complaining about like how much his back hurts. He's only 44. He's not... We're 14 years away from being a grandpa, Oh I my guess. god, don't, don't say that. Jesus yeah. Christ. So, that's just crazy to me. In terms of this movie, he's fine. Did I, did I think he's amazing? No. He's fine. What does he even do in this movie? He he sits at some some tables and he talks to people. It's it's not a showstopper performance. I'll, I'll, maybe there's more underneath the surface than I was able to process. But I'm looking at reviews for this movie and it's like, Pesci stole the Oscar. I'm like, are you fucking crazy? No. Here's the thing. <laughs> Pesci did steal the Oscar. No, he didn't. I, this is insanity. I cannot <laughs> stomach this. It's not that good. Here's what's going on for me. Like the stranger in the stranger comes to town is always a good role because they get to be all mysterious and menacing. And Glover's great at that. Like as you start to see the real person underneath the polite facade, like he really does play menace particularly well. But what really elevates him in that particular subset of characters for me is that there is like this pettiness to him this this sort of fragile ego that makes him way more compelling as a character than somebody like jonathan price and something wicked this way comes who's literally just like the devil right this is a human being who has done and continues to do terrible things because of a sense of inadequacy and that's never made explicit and it's all in Glover's performance. And he's so fucking good at that. It's it's the difference between... What's interesting with the Pesci comparison is that they are actually playing sort of slightly similar characters. They're the wild cards, like, thrown into these family units. But Pesci is just, like, a complete psychopath. His motivation is, like, <laughs> he's fucking crazy. 
right? And he's really good at being fucking crazy and angry all the time. But I don't really get a sense of like how or why he became that way. Like he's just broken. He's yeah. just a broken person. It is funny in um in Goodfellas you see the young Pesci as a kid. We didn't talk about it in Goodfellas, but he's just like a totally right, you normal don't even, kid. Like, register that it's him. <laughs> he's just yeah. He he like is with Henry when they get arrested, and he like runs over to the place, and he's like Henry got arrested, and like you're like wait that's the Tommy <laughs> shoe shine Tommy. Who kills anyone that says anything? It's and, but so what's different here is that even without scenes of Harry when he's young, like I get a full sense of the scope of this man's life, of the indignities that he has suffered, of the pain that he carries with him, and of how he has chosen to externalize that. And uh, that's all Glover. Yeah. Like, that's basically not even in the script. It's like all him. I guess so. It's just that he doesn't do much in the movie. So... I can't learn a lot about him. Just like there's like not just things happening. There's not like a scene where he convinces someone to do something that really registered with me. What about the scene that comes up pretty quickly here with, with him and Hattie? We meet this woman who's who, again, like most of these people are people who were from the South and have moved to LA. And one of them is a neighbor of the main family, a woman named Hattie who has like a past romantic relationship with Harry. Yeah, he's kind of a dick, for sure. He's a dick to but her. But it's not just that he's a dick to her. It's that like how and when he starts to become one and the way that he pulls at her attempt to remake her life because he resents the fact that her rejection of the past life is a rejection of him. I guess, man. It's a movie, though. I need some <laughs> movie shit. I need movie shit. I'm not in a theater. I'm not on the West End here, man. I'm watching a movie. I'm sorry. That's what it boils down to for me. This would have made a great play. Yeah, I think it would have made a great play. I would have loved to have read it. On, a, I'd love to have read the script with all the little dialogue things and all the little tat tips and quirks. But I'm sorry. I need some fucking spider getting shot. I'm not, and listen, I'm not... I'm not over here like saying I only watch Fast and Furious movies. I will rock with the boring movies, but like <laughs> it's it's gotta have some cinematic shit going down. And this movie just isn't cinematic at all. This but I, I I disagree. I think one of the most compelling things you can see in cinema is like simmering tension in conversations. Right? Again, I, I agree with that too. Like I'm a huge fan of the before trilogy, which is only that it's two people having these conversations that just escalate, escalate, escalate. Another great comparison point. That's like the whole sort of middle chunk of this movie is like, is, is very much that. Yeah. But the before trilogy does it in a way where it catches your attention somehow. I don't, I can't explain what it is, but this movie is just sleepy. It's just like, a, it might be like the DP situation, which is a little bit too muted for my taste. Combine that with the fact that there's probably one too many characters to be keeping track of. And Are you thinking about the party scene that comes soon here? Yeah, it's just it. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> it is, and I I don't know. I I think I'm in the minority of at least people that have seen this movie because it it gets a lot of love, but I just couldn't get behind it. My one saving grace is that there's a reviewer that is sort of on my yeah, side. Yeah, so it's really a good one to have on your side. To lay too. that. To lay that trump card down. 
But until then, let's keep going through okay. the movie because I do want to give this movie its fair due, and I also don't want to just keep saying how boring it is every five minutes. Well, so... I'll start speeding things up. Um, but Harry comes to town. Gideon and Susie invite him to stay with them, and he slowly starts exposing all the resentments and tensions that exist within this extended family. You want to know one funny thing that undercut it for me? Sorry to jump in again, but the fact that before Harry shows up, the brothers are already going at each other. Or, or the dad and the brother. Right. He's already fucking pissed at him for staying out late. So, like, they're already having pretty big fights in front of his kids. So, like, where are we going to go from there? It'd be one thing if it was like, oh, you stayed out late again, like, but it's okay. I, I'm going to spoil you a little bit. But, like, the fact that the tension is being raised because Harry showed up doesn't even register with me because they were already fighting before he even showed up. Yeah, but the ten- but Babe Brothers corruption is shown primarily with his relationship with his wife, not with his dad. And that changes dramatically after Harry arrives. I'm just saying that like there's already shit going down like before he even right, shows right. up. Right. There is. Like Harry doesn't manufacture tension. He dr- he brings it out. But it already was out. The big thing that happens is Gideon gets sick. The patriarch of this family gets sick and and slips into a coma effectively yeah it seems like he had a stroke maybe i don't know a stroke's a good call i i wasn't sure i thought it was like because he has that lip problem it seemed like it was some kind of like a like like stomach thing or like you know i don't know it just seemed like he had to he had to recover for a, a month or something so like a minor stroke maybe and this sort of becomes the catalyst for all these familiar relationships breaking down the primary one that we explore is Babe Brother, who is the most taken with Harry's freewheeling lifestyle. And we get this series of scenes that I alluded to when we were talking about uh, the actress Cheryl Lee Ralph, one in which she is cooking dinner for Babe Brother and Harry and his friends, and the next in which she's serving it, that just wrecked me. Like, they were so upsetting particularly the dinner scene uh, that follows immediately after the kitchen scene. It's just like as depictions of domestic abuse, they really were powerfully resonant without feeling forced or overly earnest or anything like that. I guess so. I, I was, um, again, the movie. You tell me that when this woman is trying to serve food to this collection of totally disreputable and disrespectful men gathered at her table you felt nothing i did not feel much no (laughs) i just like the movie at that point had lost me like in terms of what she was going through i just it 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 didn't have the spark that i needed to keep going i don't know what to tell you man it just it didn't grab me that way i i wasn't sitting there being like what is even going on right now like it just it didn't get its claws into me um, so it didn't hit me that emotionally when that was happening. Yeah. I, I don't know. I guess I just need something a little more on the nose. What can I say? Well, I mean, it's, it's weird they say, cause like these sequences are pretty explicit. You know, this particular section, it presents Linda's plight very matter of factly without a lot of obstruction, without a lot of obfuscation. I think my big problem was like, I didn't even really know who all those people at the table were i don't know 
we're not going to turn this into Nat is a psychopath who doesn't care about this poor woman's plight. Because it's not my fault that I didn't care. It's the movie's fault that I didn't care. Okay? So... It's understated. It's understated. You're going to tell me that this movie isn't I super understated? I, I agree that the movie on the whole is understated, but this sequence, it's literally like a three-minute shot of this woman's face as she is being mistreated. Like, I don't think understated is the right description for this particular section. Even if it isn't, it's still buried in a sea of understatement. So maybe it just got lost on me because... The movie hadn't hooked its claws. I don't know what to tell you. All right. Let me try a different tact. I know you like a good put down. You like a good repartee. I do like a good put down. How about Susie's response when she gets proposed to by one of Harry's friends, Okra, while her husband is still recovering upstairs? Great moment. That was like I was on my deathbed and it was like that five seconds of (laughs) lucidity. I was like, oh, something's happening. Hello! I got, like, to say my goodbye to my children in that five (laughs) seconds. No, great scene. Great scene. When that guy is, like, being creepy and wants her to say that she'll commit to him, like, loved it. That's what I need. That's movie right there. That's a movie scene. Creepy guy asking lady what the fuck she's going to do when her husband dies. Will she fuck him? Love it. Let's get more of those. What does she say to him? She says, excuse me, I have to go feed my dog. And he's just like, fuck. And it's so good. Her delivery is so, so brutally cold, too. Yeah, no, that's so great. That is great. And it's such a great distillation of her character where, like, she is this very conservative person and doesn't express her feelings overtly at basically any point in the movie. And so it's all in, like, subtext and, like, passive aggression. Yeah. No, that was a wonderful moment, and I felt many things there. So I'm not a cold husk of a human being that can't empathize with anyone. I'm just saying that the movie doesn't move very well. Well, and so Susie then becomes sort of the um, one of the major characters experiencing an arc because, like I said, she doesn't really express how she feels, but she's the one who's forced to confront Harry, which is sort of the next thing that happens where she has to say out loud, I want you to leave. And it's one of the few times that she expresses like an actual want or desire. Yeah, so this whole time, Babe Brothers sort of toying with the idea of running away, more or less, right? Mm -hmm. Going down back south with Harry. So it's all culminating in Babe Brothers' decision slash the family's reaction. And there's a, a thunderstorm, and Babe Brother comes over to the house to get picked up by Harry and, and, and to leave his family. It turns into an argument and then a fight between Babe Brother and Junior. Yes. A knife gets involved and the brothers are literally seconds from killing each other when the rest of the family finds them. And we get this cut that really, it I, I honestly, I burst into tears. Like it slayed me. I was like so unprepared <laughs> for it. And I... And I feel like a chump almost saying this to you because you're just going to be like, I felt nothing. It was dumb. Don't give me a stupid man voice. What is this? (laughs) You're right. I felt nothing. It was dumb. Okay. All right. You know what? If you're going to just completely invalidate my opinion. No, I'm I'm trying to preemptively uh, buttress my own against your invalidation. I've made my point. Which is that. You know, we we get the shot that reveals as as the family has, has, has intervened in the fight. That in order to prevent her sons from killing each other, Susie has grabbed the knife by its blade. 
Yes. And, you know, I suffered a, a pretty serious wound because of that. But it just the image of her hand holding the blade of the knife and, and, and the sacrifice that she makes to protect the one she loves in a scene that, like, you know, wasn't making me feel, you know, particularly weepy. I literally, like, it was like just one of those, like, uh, um, like Pavlovian triggers. Like, it really just, it, I, I found it so moving in its execution. And I find the Susie character to be such, such a, a beautiful character, that to have her be the 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 agent of that was was really powerful for me. Very nice. I'm not gonna insult your opinion, and I'm not gonna insult you as a person on that. <laughs> Let's move on. That's some real Susie put down right there. <laughs> uh, listen, I totally am behind you having an emotional reaction to the movie. It's great. I just like again this scene. It's like the climax of the movie, arguably, right? This is like yeah, the movie the lingers tension. for a long time after this, but this is the climax of the movie. Yeah, and again, it's just that the the cinematic language to me just isn't quite there to make the moment hit. Like you were just saying, up until that cut, you weren't feeling much, right? Like, no, I was saying I wasn't feeling like I was about to cry. Like the scene is all about like anger and rage and fear. Like I was certainly feeling things when Bay Brother pulls out the knife at the table. I was like, shit, like, is one of these guys going to die? Like, I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah, it's just like, I don't know. It, for a movie called, like, Anger, it's funny that the word sleep and the word anger are in the title. Because that's sort of what this movie is. It's a bunch of angry yeah. people, but they're all about to fall asleep. It's, it's, the, it's a still life. It's a sleeping yeah, life that's full of suppressed anger. You know that my favorite movie is, like, are like falling down and like 12 angry men where it like they get the simmer really well. Like they just understand that like starting off like a little energy and then like full on blowing up. And like this movie didn't have that. Maybe that, maybe I kind of got blue balled by this movie. A little bit. <laughs> Cause I thought it was going to be like, Oh shit. What is going to blow up? What I think this movie cr crystallized for me is that all those movies that say they're about simmering tension are actually like a healthy flame and sometimes a roaring inferno and this is the simmer. This is as low as it can get while still being tense. This is the Tennessee barbecue of movies, low and slow for 20 fucking hours. <laughs> And then you eat it and it gives you fucking diarrhea. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So they go to the hospital. There's a great bit of like observation there with like the way that they're treated at the hospital. Then they return home. Gideon is starting to recover and Harry slips on some marbles and dies. Yeah. That was epic scene when he, when he fell on some marbles in the other room. Or does he intentionally step on the like, marble? Whoa. I cried. I cried when he died. <laughs> what the Dude. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so then everyone comes over because they can't get rid of the body because the, the white coroner won't come collect it from the Watts neighborhood. I did. I did like that moment that they can't get the body. Out. That's that's a problem that I didn't even know was possible to have. It's like, dude, take this body. Come on. And we get like a series of like reprises of earlier scenes in the movie. But just now after this family has gone through this transformational experience and then the movie kind of ends right they go to yeah. they go to eat at some lady's house they all it ends with them all leaving the house and they they go to eat some picnic food there you go ben take it away i've i've said my piece on this this poor movie i've abused this movie way more than it deserved <laughs> well the other thing i just wanted to talk about was 
to me, this film is effective in its depiction of this kind of barely repressed anger and and the way that it expresses itself in these people's lives where it is you know full of microaggressions and very subtle shifts in character dynamics and as subtly as it depicts those the film also handles the 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 origin of the anger with an equal bit of subtlety and yet it is still absolutely readable and present in the film I really was struck by and, and enamored with the way that this movie depicts sort of like generational trauma, mm. the way that each successive generation in this family has been injuring or passing on trauma to the next. And the original sin, the original trauma is, is slavery. I mean, it's, it's the defining history that all of these characters share and, the wounds, the scars that it has left on this family, even, you know, a hundred years later, uh, have not fully healed and continue to cause, continue to cause harm. Yeah. And that's a cool idea that I really appreciate. And like, that kind of ties back in with like, I feel like I like all the ideas in this movie and like the, the writing is, is well executed and everything. It's just the moviness of it. Doesn't get me. Let me hit you with that Ebert quote. Yeah, lay it on me. It's a good quote. What should be a coiled film exploding at the end is one where the final act releases our impatience rather than our tension. There are some good things in this movie and too much time in between them. And my God, I feel exactly the same way. It's like, ah, there's so many good elements. There's Danny Glover, great actor. There's this history angle. There's this simmering angle but it's just there's too much time between the goodness i don't know man it just didn't hit me like that you know maybe it's the kind of movie i'll revisit in 10 years and be like oh i was totally wrong about this one because clearly there's something here yeah i did maybe i just wasn't ready for it i was i i mean i was really surprised when when i sort of started to see your your reaction to the film because i we have divergent tastes on a lot of things, but I think we um, both really respond to, uh, um, you know, something that feels like emotionally truthful. Yeah. You know, the word, I think we tend to dis diverge more on things that are like style over substance or like overly intellectual or uh, something like that. And right. my the, the, the effect that this movie had on me was like, I thought it was going to be this very intellectual exercise. And I was sort of let down by that at first because I just wasn't in the mood for that. And I found it to be a much more emotionally charged film than I was expecting. Yeah, I don't know. I just needed the movie to movie a little bit more. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Let's go. You. Let's move on. So what about the legacy? Yeah, I, uh, I don't have a budget for the movie, but I imagine it was fairly inexpensive, even with the professional cast. It opened on October 12th, 1990, to just under $20,000 in four theaters. Again, you know, this was an independent film, so it has uh, a limited release. Its widest release is only 23 theaters, so this is one of the smallest releases that we're going to cover. Oh, wow. And it goes on to gross a total of one point two million dollars so a modest indie hit of sorts yes uh i would say not a hit not a hit i oh, suspect okay. it cost more than that it's possible but um danny glover would have had to reduce his fee by a lot yeah movies like this tend to cost somewhere i would think in the four to five million dollar range it's certainly you know 
possible this was sort of in the metropolitan range, which I think was something like two or three. I don't really remember. But the film does get a fair amount of attention. I already mentioned that it won an Independent Spirit Award for Cheryl Lee Ralph, but it also won Independent Spirit Awards for Charles Burnett for his directing and screenplay, and it won Male Lead for Danny Glover. Wow, so it got some love at the uh, Spirit Awards. And Sundance, where uh, the next year when it was there, it got some attention as well. So there you go. And then obviously it got that baller Criterion release last year, so... That's the real the movie lives on as well. It should. So nineties themes. So I had a few really obvious ones <laughs> that we've already talked about a thousand times, but I'll just, I'll just go quick. Looking back on the past again, another movie where people's past is coming to haunt them a little bit. Um, I mean, the movie's not like looking like specifically like covering a long period of 20th century history. Like it's more just like ancestry, but it is, reckoning with the with the effects of the century right for sure um, it's doing it a little bit more abstractly than than something like you know goodfellas did but but it's it's it is trying to say like you know what does this century mean for these characters and for the cultures that they represent yeah and with that we're also looking at black voices obviously charles burnett is a black filmmaker getting a shot and making a feature and also something I noticed between this Mo Better Blues and House Party, which I believe are the three black directed movies that we covered this season. Yeah. All are about kind of upwardly mobile black people, right? Or pe- black people that aren't the stereotypical black people. We've seen a lot of movies. Right. Which it's is not like, like poor in or the hood. Yeah. In, in a really shitty economic situation, committing crime. All three of these movies kind of take place within like a modern middle class framework um for black people which is awesome because you know a lot of the most famous movies made by black people are at least from this period of time were like boys in the hood and like menace to society it's like gangster movies so it's cool to see a couple movies that aren't that that are more just like normal slice of life and then we kind of talked about it already but the indie scene yeah the emergence of the thing of independent cinema is like an important voice this is a kind of movie that would never have been made, you know, in the classic Hollywood era. It's right. far too personal and too, too esoteric. Yes. So I had a couple, um, one repeat one was we talked all the way back at like the very beginning about like culture clash being a potential theme. Um, and we see that some here with, uh, um, things like Southern culture versus culture in Los Angeles. There's a, there's an interesting contrast between like, um, homeopathy or or, or or like like a, a superstition and religion mm. that comes up and so i think that's worth highlighting and then some two new ones that that struck me uh the first was violence against women there have been some pretty unflinching portraits of that in, in movies like pretty woman blue steel dick tracy goodfellas miller's crossing which again i think is something that's sort of being brought out into the forefront a little bit more at this period in time than maybe it had been prior. And this sort of feels like maybe a lot of these taboos were broken during the new Hollywood era when people were really taking a lot of risks. And after a swing back to sort of more conservative representation in the eighties, it's starting to reemerge here in the early nineties. Totally. But the big one I wanted to talk about, because I, I, this started as like, um, mere observation and the more i dug into what the films that we've covered the more it actually became something that i'm convinced is a bizarre trend okay i want to talk about 
families. Oh, okay. There are basically no positive family units depicted in any of the movies that we've watched. Wow. Either there's no family at all. That's probably most of what we watched. Or the family is absent. So that's things like Hunt for Red October, Die Hard 2, even something like Arachnophobia, where the kids are constantly leaving to be out of the movie so that Jeff yeah, Daniels can never, do his own they thing. They never show up in the movie. Metropolitan, where like the absence of the parents is noted. Or the family is some kind of like obstacle or something to be avoided or a source of pain, i.e. it's bad family. So Pretty Woman had that. Dick Tracy has that, where like Dick Tracy's trying to avoid settling down and having a family. Obviously, right. it's in Blue Steel. Um, yep. It's in Q&A. Yep. It's in State of Grace with the brothers betraying oh, each other. Yeah. He betrays it's in uh, RoboCop 2, you know, with the pain he feels having lost his family. Psycho 4, literally, like, was going to murder his wife so that they don't start a family together. Hard to Kill, Child's wow. Play 2, Metropolitan, Paris is Burning, Dreams, Goodfellas. All of these have painful family relationships. I need more, I need more examples. <laughs> Where there is a good quote-unquote family, it's a non-traditional one or a created one. So that's like TMNT or Nightbreed or, again, Paris is Burning or even King of New York and Goodfellas if you want to call criminal organizations good family units. Right. The only three positive depictions of like a traditional family that I could really think of were the three black films. Whoa. What? Mo better blues house party and this, although this and house party also present the family as sort of an obstacle as well, but both ultimately end on like a positive representation of family. <laughs> well, house, house party is like the most gleeful belt whipping in a movie I've ever seen. So sure, yeah. When he gets yeah. home, Robin Harris is going to kill him with a belt, but we could call that positive, sure. It is very but funny. I, but I but the but the movie def- doesn't shy away from how Their important that relationship is. Yeah, for sure. And like I think Mo Better Blues is the best example cuz that's the only one where he literally abandons everything so that he can start a family. And well, but and this one too is a movie about like a family going through difficulties to ultimately become stronger together. The emotional catharsis is the family being more united than they were at the start of the movie. There's only one movie that doesn't really fit this pattern. Although I think it's kind of a cheat and that's Rocky five, which is about like him and his family and his son and all that. But because it's a fifth movie in a franchise and a lot of that family stuff predates 1990, I don't know that that's an accurate reflection of like, the milieu of 1990 it's more of a reflection of like the 80s well this is a great new theme that we're gonna have to keep an eye on i can already think of a couple movies that we're coming up on that will be very relevant to all of this so good on you people were just i guess like we're not into family in in 1990 well wasn't the divorce rate at like an all-time high at this point i believe it i mean it certainly is becoming like mainstream news that it's high yeah i don't know Families were not in a good place and probably still aren't at all, but definitely a different family situation than it was like 50 years before 1990. That's for sure. Uh, The other one I wanted to pick your brain on with this is Miami blues just because it has that weird sequence where they have kind of like a manufactured domesticity. It's not exactly a family, but it has some of the iconography of family life. Yeah. I mean, Miami blues is a film well beyond it's Pierce. It is probably <laughs> operating. It, I shouldn't on, have even brought it up. It's probably operating on like six 
different levels that we couldn't even begin to understand as mere mortals. No, I think it's just another fucked up take as right. a family. I totally agree with you. It's like cool. another, it's like a fucking psychopath is thinking he can build a family out of a violent murder spree. It's like the ultimate version of this. There's a way to see it's it's the way it treats the concept of family as like aspirational. Like it's 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 uh what's his name? Uh Sonny? Is it Sonny in that too? I can't remember the It's name Alec Baldwin's sort of way out. Blue Steel or Miami Blues. <laughs> but there's another way of looking at it where it's like a weird corruption. And I, I I'm glad that you sort of land on that side because then it sort of fits in, right? Like it's another oh, toxic sure. family. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a very good family. So yeah, that's just really, really interesting. And I'm really curious to see how it develops with the rest of this year and if we see it in future years too. Because to be fair, families aren't the most cinematic convention. Like having people who are free to go out and do adventures generally makes for more exciting movies. 100% agree. But when you make a movie about family, it is interesting to see how many of these films tend to depict families as being harmful instead of positive. Well, yeah, and then like going from harmful to positive or just being harmful all the way throughout like it is a difference so yeah good on you let's finish this out cool you know to sleep with anger watch it please watch it prove me wrong i'm just saying i'm not a huge fan of this movie i'll revisit it one day how about that (laughs) Great. I'm glad that's our closing thoughts on the film that is a beautiful testament (laughs) to the power of an artist's vision and an absolute must see just uh you know make sure it's the am when you watch it not the pm so for back to the movies because you'll cry so much you won't even ever be able to sleep again yes because your skull has been bored into no (laughs) okay i'm just saying it's kind of boring for like listeners that like don't know what they're getting into like it's you're not gonna want to watch it all right uh let's unless you like profound and deeply moving films okay Thanks to Andy Gagnon and Jackie Saltzman for our music and art, respectively. Yes. Thank you guys so very much. We love them. We're really trying to grow the brand, and that stuff is super helpful. Please follow us on social media at BTTMPod on Instagram, Twitter. You can also follow us on Letterboxd. We're, we're up there. I think if you just search our names, you can you can find yeah. us. We'll get the real deal. I'm Hain 101. Hain 101. Yeah. We, we write reviews. We comment on reviews we make lists and stuff like that so check us out there and yeah what's our movie next week ben next week we have a double feature it's the oscars that time forgot the movies are uh, awakenings and reversal of fortune Ooh, okay i've never seen either of those so um i'm pretty excited to see those what, what is it gonna even i don't even know what they're about or what the deal is with either of them this is gonna be awesome we're gonna get some more de niro oh we're gonna okay. get some jeremy irons uh one of my favorite actors nice nice okay i'm excited this is gonna be a good palate cleanser all right for back to the movies <laughs> had to get one in there <laughs> Son of a for bitch, back to the movies this has been nat <laughs> and this has been and we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies Matt, if you like the two movies we watch next week more than this, I'm going to lose it. I probably will. I mean, if they got nominated for Best Picture, it means they got got some cinematic jobs. They got some juice. Yeah.